In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, I am thrilled to be bringing on author Didier Yez, who is a prolific author. You may know him as the force behind the They Drew As They Pleased series, which uncovers the artists and artwork of some of Disney's most beloved films and even some hidden treasures along the way. The series has chronicled the whole history of Disney animation, quite honestly, from its uh, roots in the 1930s up until present day with his latest volume, uh, which will be the main part of our conversation. So let's head straight to that conversation with author Didier Gez. Author Didier Gez's sixth and final volume in the popular They Drew As They Pleased series has recently debuted. The hidden art of Disney's new golden age explores four signature artists from recent decades featuring amazing stories of their time with the company and a plethora of fantastic imagery from both familiar films and abandoned projects. Today on Notably Disney, Didier joins me to discuss this series and his role as one of the more one of the foremost experts on Disney books uh, as the individual who runs the Ultimate Disney Books Network. He is a well-published author and the recipient of the prestigious June Foray Award. Um, he's been someone I've been uh, hoping to interview for a while, and I'm glad that um, the stars align. So welcome to Notably Disney, Didier. Thank you very much, Brett. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a, certainly an exciting time on the book front, and I know a lot of our conversation today um, is going to focus on this sixth volume. This series has been... Um, part of many of our lives as Disney readers over recent years. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, maybe to start off, uh, recognizing that you have had several um, volumes behind you, in what ways did feedback from prior volumes inform the approaches that you took in writing and framing this newest one? Well, it's not so much feedback from previous volumes as the fact that when I was researching the previous volumes, I tended to find things that uh, would be suited for the next volume. So uh, I made a few uh, really amazing discoveries when I was researching something for for one of the volumes that had an impact on another volume. So let, let's let's give you a couple of uh, really fun examples. Uh, so when I was researching the... Um, the fifth volume of the series, which focuses on the artists Ken Anderson and Mel Show, I worked with the, the family of Ken Anderson, uh, who's a fantastic uh, character designer and, and one of the, my, my favorite, really, uh, concept artists um, at the Disney Studio. And uh, I worked with his family, and his family opened the doors to their private collection. And so uh, when I went there with a good friend of mine to scan the, the collection, the first thing I, I saw was an envelope that says, Sleeping Beauty, and a pretty, uh, 
pretty thick envelope. And so I opened the envelope and I was really uh, expecting to find drawings uh, by Ken Anderson for uh, probably storyboards from uh, from Sleeping Beauty, since he wasn't really doing character design at that time, but rather storyboards. And so I opened the envelope and I started looking at, at those hundreds of drawings that the envelope contains. And, and what I realized is, oh my God, those are not drawings by Ken Anderson. Those are all drawings by the character designer, Tom Oreb. And those are very early drawings, character designs for Sleeping Beauty. And so thankfully, I was still a few weeks away finalizing the fourth volume of the series, which had a full chapter on, on Tom Oreb. And so I was able to include five or six pages of character, early character designs for Sleeping Beauty uh, because of the research I was conducting for the, the fifth volume of the series, which had nothing to do with Tom Oreb. So that, that was one of the, uh, uh, the really very cool discoveries. Uh, and, and to talk about the sixth volume, uh, something uh, sort of similar happened, which is uh, when I was uh, working on the uh, introduction for uh, uh, volume five, uh, I, uh, I was really working on the, uh, on the history of uh, the uh, character animation program at ColorArts and also the training program at the, at the Disney Studio. Uh, that whole program that started when the nine old men realized that they were about to retire and that they needed to uh, bring fresh blood to the, the studio. And so when I was researching that, I started talking with quite a few of the people who had been part of the, uh, uh, of the training program and the, um, and the program at ColorArts. And one of them was someone I'd, I already knew uh, from years back, uh, a person called Daryl Von Sittels. Uh, and, and so I spoke with Daryl, I interviewed him about the, the subject and so on and so forth, and we, we ended up talking in more details about his career. And what I realized is that uh, stored at his place were boxes and boxes of never seen before material that really needed to be scanned. So um, we went to his place and we started opening the boxes and, and the first thing I discovered in those boxes were dozens and dozens of original drawings for the abandoned version of Who, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, and wow. a lot of those were drawn by Michael Jaimo. Uh, and so in volume six, you now have um, like a big part of the chapter about Michael Jaimo, at least five or six pages, uh, which show those never seen before uh, character designs and concept drawings for the abandoned version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, so, it's a question of one, the research for one volume, uh, feeding the other volumes is, is really what it is. So it really sounds like it was a, not necessarily the, the most linear process, but ultimately the, the information and the artwork you were curating could be kind of set aside for future editions. That, that, that's right, that's right. It, it was absolutely not a linear process. And that, that was also the beauty of doing a series in six volumes. Um, because you, you, you knew that uh, some of the things you would discover for one volume would, would probably be uh, uh, very uh, useful for future volumes and, and uh, uh, that you would really build on, on what you had found in the past. So that, that's the fun part of the, the whole process. Well, and I know one um, challenge, uh, an opportunity that you mentioned at the beginning of the book is figuring out who to focus on for this last volume. and. Um, there's a good deal of uh, detail um, put into that. I, I guess, and I'd love to talk about your understandings and um, interactions with the um, with the artists that are who are featured. But I'm really I'm curious, Didier, um, considering that this sixth volume covers basically a 30 year period, which is a much wider breadth of time than some of the prior volumes. How did that factor into determining uh, what artwork and what pieces of information to include? Because I recognize this is this was a really fruitful time for Walt Disney Animation. So, as you know, I mean, despite the, the title and the fact that it mentions a certain time period in the title, uh, the um, the key to the subjects I'm discussing is really. 
who are the artists I will focus on in each volume. Um, because once I focus on an artist uh, who I think is representative of that time period, then I really discussed that artist's full career, um, even if it's an artist who started in the 1930s and then ended his career in the 1990s. Um, that person uh, would still be relevant for, uh, for a volume like the, the sixth volume, which is about at the 1990s until 2020. So the, the, the first key uh, when I started working on this volume was to find out who am I going to focus on? Who are going to be the artists that I will include? And, and I knew that that would be horrendously difficult to take those decisions because um, there are so many artists that were influential during those 30 years, and I, I could not include a tenth of them. So then I started asking myself, okay, who really, really, really makes sense? Who can I not live without in this volume? So the first artist, which was who was absolutely obvious, was uh, Joe Grant. Mm -hmm. And and the reason why Joe Grant was obvious is uh, because Joe Grant's career had started in the 1930s, ended in the 1990s. And so really, and, and his first colleague in the 1930s was Albert Herter. And Albert Herter obviously is the first artist that I'm covering, uh, that I'm discussing in the They Drew As They Please book series in the very first volume, his first chapter of that first volume, because he's also the first concept artist. So having Joe Grant in, in the last volume of the series allowed me to really go full circle and 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 to 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 tie all of the loose ends and and sort of uh, um, make sure that we had uh, the sense of the story is full here and and we we've really done it well. Now, since I had Joe Grant, um, I looked at really who were the artists in the. Uh, uh, in the visual development side of things, in the concept art side of things, that had worked very closely with Joe when he was back at the studio in the 1990s. And there were two artists that immediately um, became obvious choices. Uh, one was Mike Gabriel, and the other one was Michael Jaimo. Both of them had worked very, very closely with Joe Grant. Um, one of them, Michael Jaimo, had been absolutely instrumental on the design of Frozen and Frozen 2. Um, and uh, both of them were amazing, are amazing character designers, which is something that I really admire. And obviously, when you, when you start talking about characters, uh, the book immediately becomes more relatable. Uh, it, it becomes even more interesting. I mean, we're all really interested in characters. So, they had to be in the in the book, uh, and so that left only one spot. Um, I knew I had only one more selection that I could make, and since I had two outstanding character designers, and and since Joe Grant was really focusing on uh, both uh, character designs and also uh, really gags and and uh, situations and story situations. Uh, I knew what I needed was an artist that, that had a tremendous talent when it came to um, setting the scene and, and especially um, art directing a, a movie that had had a very strong influence on the art direction of a movie. Uh, and so the name that immediately sprang to mind was Hans Packer, uh, especially because of his role on Mulan, uh, but also just because of the moods he creates with his drawings and his paintings. Um, and so I had to include um, Hans Packer. Now, obviously, that was a really, really tough choice, all of this, because that meant that people like Paul Felix or uh, fantastic women artists like uh, Lorelei Beauvais uh, and, and others could not be included in this book. And uh, I'm hoping that at some point I'll be able to solve that by, uh, um, by basically working on other books that, uh, uh, that focus on their art. Uh, and so once you have decided uh, on who the artists are that will be included in, in the book, then it's a question of really exploring their career uh, project by project, movie by movie, uh, including all of the abandoned movies. And, uh, and that's the, uh, in a way, that's the easy part, uh, especially in this case, because in this case, three out of four of the artists are alive today. So I was able to interview them 
session after session. Uh, I would do sessions of interviews that will last um, in average about an hour and a half. And uh, with the three of them, I did session, uh, about six to seven sessions each. So I interviewed all of them uh, for more than 10 hours each. Uh, and that was really, really fun. And in the case of Joe Grant, I had access to the collection that his family had preserved and obviously all of the research I conducted at the Disney archives and in private collections, private archives and so on and so forth. You really, like I did in previous volumes, really go very much in depth uh, when it come, came to uh, reconstructing his whole career and understanding all of the projects he had worked on. Well, that's one of the, I guess, trademarks of your series that I really enjoy is that there's quite the dive into a selection of artists, some names that many folks are quite familiar with, others not so much. And ultimately, we gain an understanding of their paths to Disney, sometimes away from Disney for a period, and, and even their eventual returns in some cases. One fact that I found was really intriguing, and I'd love to learn a little bit more. Um, you talk about Hans Bacher. Um, you mentioned, at, I think, at the beginning of the chapter on him that he was actually connect, he quickly connected with Andreas Deja as a teenager. Is that correct? Yes, that's, that's right. I mean, they were, they were both, both German. They are both German. And um, they, uh, Andreas Deja knew of uh, Hans Bakker and he uh, looked him up. He, uh, he um, knew that Hans had, uh, if I remember well, uh, a school uh, that trained uh, animators and trained artists. And Andreas was looking for a place where he could study and study animation. And so uh, he, um, he seeked out Hans and Hans realized immediately that Andreas had tremendous talent and they became really good friends. And then they both went to meet with Eric Larson when Eric Larson visited Germany. Uh, and, um, and, and they took it from there, and the rest is history. Well, and, and Andreas obviously is a, a legendary Disney artist in his own right for um, bringing to life some of the classic villains of, of this era as well. Um, there's, so much, there's so many names that are incorporated in here that kind of to your earlier point, I, I would not envy being the individual having to determine who's who is included and who is excluded, but I appreciate how you reference these other folks to also give perspective to their roles on different projects. Could you talk, um, Didier, uh, one of the abandoned projects that uh, is focused on across several pages um, was actually in development as recently as only a few years ago, that being Gigantic, which was a, a new take on the Jack and the Beanstalk story and you feature artwork from there as well as um, there's some insights from um, both Mike Gabriel and Mike Gimo uh, uh, Giamo is that how it's pronounced? I think it's pronounced Gimo. Gimo, Gimo, perfect. So uh, can you tell some insights that you gleaned from that considering the recency of that particular endeavor? So I didn't get a lot of details on, on the plot but as, as you saw in the book uh, I've displayed more artwork uh, about that project that we had ever seen before. Uh, there are a few pieces that we had seen in the past, but Disney was kind enough to let me uh, feature lots of character designs, lots of uh, concept art pieces, and so on and so forth. And uh, and I thought that was uh, I was surprised that they actually uh, let all of that be released in in the book, and I was pleasantly surprised. I uh, thought for a while that. Uh, uh, that was not going to be a load. And then in the end, uh, yeah, we end up with everything I wanted to include is in there. So um, that, that was a really good, uh, cool uh, little surprise uh, from my standpoint. Well, and I think it really lives up to the, to the series title of the hidden art, because indeed none of, that, none of those um, had really been seen before. So what a discovery and an opportunity to share that with readers. Yeah, I mean, you know, that the whole idea from the start um, with this series was, was the following, was to say, okay, I love Disney history. Um, I'm frustrated at two levels when it comes to Disney history. Uh, the first level is from an artwork perspective, because I love uh, concept art, I love visual development art, and in 
all of the books that I own about Disney history, which means all of the books that have ever been released about Disney history, I find the same 100, 150 pieces of concept art over and over and over again. And it's always the same. And I don't understand because I know that the Animation Research Library uh, has, which is the place where Disney stores their artwork, uh, they have more than 75 million pieces of artwork. And out of those 75 million pieces of artwork, there must be at least 100,000 which are pieces of visual development artwork. So why do we see the same 150 over and over and over again? So that doesn't make sense. There needs to be someone that goes there and start opening all of those boxes where, uh, with artwork that we have not seen before. And I also know that some of the families uh, preserve artwork uh, that has not been seen uh, before, some of the families of the artists. So that was on one side my frustration, was to say let's, let's finally do a book or a series of books that showcases all of that artwork that we have not seen until now. And then the other thing that frustrated me was to say, okay, when we talk about those artists, uh, we tend to say the exact same things over and over again about them. And some of them, we don't even talk about them. And some of them, we, uh, we talk about their career, but we know how they went from point A to point C, but we, we have no idea uh, about point B. And uh, I, I want to understand a lot more uh, about their career, a lot more in depth about what they did. And, and also I don't want to understand just about stories about the projects that made it to the screen. I, this is a creative process. The, the projects that did not make it to the screen are more numerous than the ones that make it to the screen. And to understand those projects that make it to the screen, you, you need to understand all of the failures. You need to understand all of the projects that were shelved. You need to understand the trials and errors. And, and I can't read about that almost anywhere. A little bit, or quite a little bit, in a book that I love, which is The, uh, the Disney That Never Was by Charles Solomon, mm. that's, that's about it. And, and so that was the whole idea behind the series, is showcase a lot of artwork that I had not seen before, that had not been seen before, and find out about all of the stories that we, 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 we didn't know much before, and try and do it through the voice of the artists themselves, either through their actual voice, uh, through in new interviews for those who are alive, or through past interviews, correspondence, diaries, and so on and so forth. And so I was able to uh, track down lots of diaries that had been lost uh, before. Uh, I've been, been able to locate memoirs, autobiographical notes, uh, correspondence, and so on and so forth, which which really allows us to allow us to uh, uh, look over the shoulders of those artists and, and have the impression of really taking a time machine and, and going back to the studio when they were still working there and, and literally looking day by day at what they, they were doing at the time. Well, um, I, I really always love those, that feature of your books where, as you were talking about, um, quite in depth about really exploring the abandoned projects and um, making sure that um, they don't completely get lost to time. What were some of the unique discoveries that you came across during this process that even as, as qualified and um, deep a Disney expert that you are, that really maybe took you by surprise? Well, so I, I mentioned one of them, which is the, uh, the abandoned version of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, I, I didn't realize that so much artwork uh, from that version had been preserved. So that, that was one really wonderful shock. The, the other great shock was uh, the, uh, the abandoned version of what became in the end Home on the Range, uh, which at the mm -hmm. time was known as uh, Sweating Bullets. And the work that both Mike Gabriel and Mike Jamo did on that, on that movie, it's just spectacular. Their, their character designs, their concept sketches for that project, just mind-blowing and I had no idea that they had done so much work on, on that project and that there was so much beautiful stuff that had been preserved so that's another one and then going back to the chapter on Joe Grant um, I was incredibly surprised by the amount of work that he and his colleague at the time Dick Humer 
had done on the projects during World War II, the propaganda projects. And, and the one that surprised me the most was one that no one had seen before and no one had seen anything about before called the Futile, the Futile Neutral uh, featuring Pluto. And I was able to track down a storyboard um, that had been created for that specific project. And once again, uh, although it is a slightly sensitive uh, project uh, because it is a propaganda short uh, and, and created during the war, uh, Disney was kind enough to say, yes, uh, it is shown in the proper, proper context and you explain why it was created. So we let you use that image in, in the book. And uh, it was a really big discovery from, from my standpoint. Uh, I would say also that in terms of research in that chapter about Joe Grant, if you read the chapter um, uh, in detail, what you'll realize is the end notes that relate to that chapter are almost as lengthy as the chapter itself. So in this book, you really get uh, two chapters about Joe Grant for the price of one, I would say, which is quite kind of cool, kind of cool and which I really enjoyed doing. For sure. Well, and as a Pluto's actually my favorite Disney character. So that was a project I had never heard about and I such I appreciated its inclusion. Um, you're talking about Joe Grant and some really unique projects. One of them um, that caught my eye was Square, Square World um, with very um, angular design. Could, could you talk about that? Of course. So Square World was a project that Joe Grant and his colleague Dick Humer worked on uh, extensively uh, towards the end of uh, uh, World War II. And uh, the whole idea of that project was to, uh, to show, obviously, that the racial theories uh, of the Nazis were completely insane and uh, uh, to show that you couldn't force people uh, to become what they are not. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, you have this whole society, which is, uh, uh, you, you must be square. That's the only way you can really survive in that society. And, uh, and of course, um, the, the whole society uh, like pushes uh, people who are um, not square, who are round or who are triangles uh, to become square. Uh, and and that doesn't that obviously doesn't work, and in the end the whole thing explodes, and uh, it's uh, it, it's a complete disaster, and uh, uh, people go back to their nor normal selves. Uh, it's a beautiful project. Uh, it's a project, as you know, that was shelved, uh, and I was able to track down um, a lot of concept pieces, uh, both in private collections and also uh, recently rediscovered at the Animation Research Library, uh, which means that the whole uh, the whole section on Square World is only drawings that we had not seen before, uh, which uh, which obviously is always the goal in, in this series. Very cool. Well, and, and I appreciate the symbolism associated um, with that. And I think that's really a, a hallmark of Disney where um, a lot of times, whether implicitly or in some cases more explicitly, there are um, very strong takes on different uh, societal and structural issues that are illustrative of the era. And I think that's uh, particularly uh, salient in the 1940s um, during the wartime era. So I, and, and that's what I liked about you featuring Joe Grant because his roots um, really emerged during the earliest days of Disney animation and until as recently as the 90s. So Didier, uh, uh, kind of, I really want to make sure that um, all the artists that you feature are highlighted in this conversation. Um, going back to um, Mike Gabriel, uh, one image that caught my eye, even though it's extremely familiar, is the new castle opening for um, Walt Disney Pictures, which debuted in 06 with uh, Dead Man's Chest. Um, and I, I know you incorporate a little bit of context on that, but considering the um, symbolism associated with um, that image that all of us are familiar with when we enter a Disney film. Um, what did you uncover about that particular process? Because it's not a typical animation project. Well, what, what was quite fascinating about that, that project is uh, it, it obviously has become absolutely iconic today. And we, uh, 
I love it. I'm sure you love it. It's, uh, it is both classic and at the same time completely modern. And the, the incredible thing about it is that uh, Mike Gabriel um, came up with that concept in just a few hours and then presented it uh, to uh, uh, senior management. And senior management looked at it and said, well, we only have like one small note and I can't remember exactly what the note was, but that, that's it. Aside from that, we just love it and we're gonna go with it. And so that's just, that is mind blowing. The fact that in just a few hours, my Gabriel uh, was able to come up with, with a concept that has become so universally loved uh, and that almost nothing was changed until it, it, it made it to the screen. Um, that almost never happens. And, uh, and it is really, um, it really shows us uh, the, the, the incredible talent that my Gabriel is and, uh, and, and the mastery of his art that, that, that he, he had and still has uh, uh, to be able to do something like that. Well, it's pretty remarkable. And I, I remember the first time I saw it on screen with Dead Man's Chest and being completely astounded because the opening in the past was very simple um, comparatively. Um, but uh, it's it's really interesting to know he had such an instrumental role in that, and yet the idea just came to him pretty instantly. It's very cool. Uh, going back to um, Michael Jaimo, um, meanwhile, I, I was really fascinated to discover that not only does his work um, encompass Disney animation, but that he had also been involved with a number of projects in the theme parks, including... Captain EO and the Living Seas. Could you share more about um, his role in the theme park space? Yeah, so in the, um, in the very early years uh, when he worked um, at the studio at the beginning of his career, uh, he was indeed involved with a few projects uh, for the parks. And so uh, one of the projects was a, a project for, um, uh, for Tokyo Disneyland um, called Meet the World. And he, uh, there is an animated uh, sequence that was part of that of that project with two characters that were sort of the hosts of the attraction, and uh, they needed uh, designs for uh, for the hosts, and so uh, uh, Mike um, Mike Jaimo really uh, designed those two uh, those two characters, um, and then um, and then he was also uh, involved in uh, in a project. Uh, for the uh, the Living Seas Pavilion uh, for for Epcot, a short film which was called uh, "Suited for the Sea," um, which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, did not make it to the screen and was just uh, uh, developed uh, at the time and then shelved. If I remember well, I may be wrong on that. Um, so so yeah, he he did have some involvement uh, with with the parks. Uh, uh, it was for a very short period of time, uh, but I was um, was actually excited to discover that to discover that and to be able to talk with him about something that we really didn't know at all about his career. Really fascinating stuff. I, in talking with you, I'm I'm thinking to myself, what a what a monumental gift it is to be able to relay individual stories and and their creations, many of which had have not been seen until now for you in, in thinking back to maybe when you first started the series and and then up until this point what have been the most rewarding um, aspects of this process as as a writer as a scholar as a, um, a storyteller really well I, I would I would say there are, there are three things um, as um, as someone who has been fascinated by Disney history for all of, all of these years, for more than 30 years now, uh, it, was, it really gave me the chance to, uh, to discover things that I wanted, that I had always wanted to, uh, to discover, to really understand things. But to put it differently, the reason why I write those books, uh, first and foremost, is for myself, <laughs> before anyone else. Of course. Uh, I'm... It, it's an adventure of discovery 
which is important for me. So when, when I start writing those books is, what are the questions that I have? What would I want to know? What are the things that remain mysteries for me? Uh, and, and those are the answers that I try to, uh, to locate. I try to understand what the actual dates were, try to uh, understand what, what some of the abandoned projects were really about. I try to understand uh, if there was more artwork uh, that had been created for a specific project and where it is now. So, and, and being able to, uh, uh, to go and, and look into all of those nook and crannies uh, to, uh, uh, to find that additional information that I'd always been curious about, this is probably the most rewarding thing. Now, from a research standpoint, uh, I think the two things that were the most exciting for me were, on the one side, being able to find some lost diaries. Uh, and so the first really big discovery uh, from this project um, during the, the research for volume one was I was able to locate the diaries and the correspondence of concept artist Ferdinand Horvath. Uh, and the correspondence was in Hungarian, the diaries were in German, and I got friends to translate the whole correspondence and the relevant section of the diaries. Uh, but that was, that was crazy treasure trove. Like, that was his whole life in those diaries. And, and the fact that they had not been lost, that they had not uh, disappeared forever, and that I was able to locate them uh, 20 years after the last person had seen, seen them was just just really earth-shattering from my standpoint. Uh, and then on the uh, on the side of the artwork, um, well, there were there were lots of highlights. Uh, discovering the collection of the artist Sylvia Holland was probably without a doubt one of the the real highlights of of the whole. Uh, the whole adventure that, that is, they drew as they pleased. Uh, we, uh, we knew that there was a bit of artwork with her family. Uh, I had no idea that there would be so much. And so we kept opening one box after the other and each box uh, or each crate, I would say, was full from top to bottom uh, with artwork and things by Kai Nielsen and by Sylvia Holland and documentation and so on and so forth. And so it took us a year and a half to scan all of that. And that was just, that was just an incredible adventure. Uh, and then finally, uh, on the artwork side, um, the most emotional moment for me was when I was at the Animation Research Library, uh, conducting some research on Robin Hood. And I was born in 1973, the year of the release of Robin Hood. And I grew up uh, watching those 60 millimeters uh, home movies uh, of scenes from Robin Hood and so on and so forth. And so I was finally at the Animation Research Library opening boxes of artwork by Ken Anderson, my favorite uh, Disney concept artist. And those were all of his uh, concept designs for the characters in Robin Hood, including hundreds that we had never seen before. And, and, and when we opened those boxes, I mean, I... I, I literally started crying. I was, I was really, really, it was a really, really emotional moment for me um, and, and a very, very moving moment because I was like, okay, I, I'm finally, finally reaching one of the, the goals that I've always had in life, which is to, to see all of that artwork and to be able to choose from that artwork for a, for a project that I'm working on. That's really beautiful. And I think as a reader, it's explicit that this is a labor of love and you've put the time and effort and everything you've got into um, making sure that you've done your thorough research and uncovered treasures for all of us to be able to appreciate. Well, I, I know that you have a, a love for Disney books as not just an author, but as a reader. So I'm wondering, um, shifting gears a little bit, can you talk about the inspiration to develop the Ultimate Disney Books Network, which uh, for so many of us has been quite the tool over the years. Yeah, sure. Um, what happened is um, at one point, uh, and that was a few years before the web uh, became what it is. So must have been around 93, 94. Uh, I decided that I wanted to list all of the books about Disney that I had in, uh, in my uh, library. 
uh, and on my bookshelves. And I wanted to do that because there was a magazine at the time released in the UK um, in which I thought uh, I could release that list with some commentaries on all of those books to uh, uh, really give um, uh, recommendations to uh, the other uh, uh, Disney fans and fans of Disney history. So I, I uh, listed all of those books, uh, which basically were all of the books that were released about Disney uh, at that time. Um, and then I realized, you know what, this is, uh, I need to update this because this is going to be a useful tool for me in the future. And, and especially the, uh, the, um, the section about upcoming books. I was always, uh, you know, I was living at the time, I think in Geneva, Switzerland, if I'm not mistaken. And so I needed to uh, write to, uh, to quite a few people in the US uh, and, and subscribe to quite a few magazines to find out what, what books were going to be released. Uh, and so for me, having this, uh, um, this list of, of upcoming books that I could uh, that I could expect and that I uh, would want to buy as soon as they were released that was very important and I thought okay well if it's important to me maybe other people are going to find this uh, interesting uh, and so when the web started becoming um, what it is in uh, uh, starting probably in 96 or something like that I was like okay if I had to launch a website, what would it be about? Well, it would be about something I really care a lot about. And, uh, and what I really care a lot about is Disney history and especially Disney books. So why don't I take that list that I've created for that UK magazine and publish that online and then, uh, and then update that on a regular basis? And so that's what I've been doing for the last, oh my God, oh no, that's almost 25 years now. Eesh. Oh, I feel a lot older. <laughs> You've read a lot of books in that time. Do you have a sense of how, over the course of a year, how many Disney-related books you are consuming? No, I have no idea. I, I buy every single book that's released about Disney history. So uh, I, I'm not sure how many books that would be on a yearly basis, but um, at least 15, probably 20, something like that minimum. For sure. I know you mentioned earlier, um, as a reader, one thing that bothers you about many books is that they, at least art books um, or, or books in general, that they often use the same um, imagery that people are accustomed to. And, and that's a distinct feature of your series. Uh, they do as they pleased. So I'm wondering, um, Didier, recognizing that, you, that the collection of books is uh, voluminous and that there are many more books that have debuted over recent years in general. What are the biggest opportunities and maybe even issues associated with such an influx of Disney history books debuting? Well, so the, uh, the, the biggest issue, obviously, the biggest challenge is uh, to find books that really move the needle, uh, that really uh, uh, tell a story that has not been told before uh, more in depth. Uh, or, uh, or a different story, and also that do showcase uh, photographs, illustrations, artwork that has not been seen before. Uh, and it's tough. Uh, you don't have that many books released uh, today that do that. So uh, uh, the uh, uh, one wonderful example that comes to mind, the, the passion uh, book series, uh, especially the latest volume, the Mickey Mouse one, uh, that, that my good friends and, and fellow historians, David Gernstein and J.B. Kaufman um, released recently. Uh, that's, that's a really good example of uh, a book that does move the needle. I mean, just, uh, just the chapter about the abandoned uh, Mickey Mouse shorts in itself is worth the price of the, the full book uh, uh, because it, it shows so much that has not been seen before. It explores so much that has not been explored before. Uh, there aren't that many books um, each year that, that do that, that really move the needle. Uh, but you, you do uh, uh, quite a few times have some really good surprises. I mean, there was, there was a book when, when it was announced a few years back. I was like, no, this book is never this. Why would they even do a book like this, which was a book called Eat Like Walt. Mm. And when I got the book, I was blown away. It was a wonderfully researched book, a book by someone who really, truly, deeply cared about what she was writing about. Uh, and, and so that was, um, that was a real highlight. Uh, a book like uh, 
the book that Mindy Johnson did uh, a few years back called oh, yes. uh, the, the Women of Disney Animation. I mean, th that's a book that's really worth releasing because it really moves the needle uh, for, from my standpoint. So that's the big challenge. And so to, uh, because we were aware of that challenge, and when I say we, I mean myself and other fellow Disney historians, um, we, um, we had started about 10 years ago uh, what became a nonprofit association called the uh, Hyperion Historical Alliance. Uh, and that official nonprofit association uh, two years ago started saying, you know what, we, we do need to, um, to try and address that, that question of the fact that not many books are really moving the needle uh, today. Not many publications, I would say, are really moving the needle today when it comes to Disney history and going really in depth and also showcasing artwork, photographs, illustrations that have not been seen before. Uh, so what we did is we started, uh, and that really started last year, we started two publication projects in parallel. One is a magazine that is being released on a yearly basis called the Hyperion Historical Alliance Annual. The first issue was released last year. Uh, the next issue is going to be out in about two to three weeks, I think. Uh, and that magazine really is a collection of essays very in-depth about specific uh, parts of Disney history. And it can be essays about animation, essays about uh, artists who worked at the studio, essays about Walt Disney Imagineering, the parks, and so on and so forth. But what they all have in common is that they tap into resources that have not been tapped into before, um, and they go very, very much in depth, and the end notes really document where the information comes from. So that's for people who really like to read uh, in-depth essays about Disney. But then in parallel to that, we, th we thought, okay, well, those magazines, we know that because of the nature of those magazines and the way the licenses work with Disney and so on and so forth, those are not going to be uh, magazines that are going to be very illustration heavy. In fact, uh, they will have very few illustrations. It's all about the text and the research. Well, in parallel to that, is there a way to launch a series of monographs, uh, hardcover, full color monographs, that are gonna be able to explore subject matters that are very niche, and that they're so niche that no mainstream publisher, be it Disney editions or Chronicle Books, uh, would want to release books about. Uh, and so we, we spoke with Disney and we got to an agreement. And so starting last year at the D23 Expo, the Hyperion Historical Alliance launched the um, the Hyperion Historical Alliance monographs series. And the first one that was released was one on the making of Walt Disney's Fun and Fancy Free by uh, my good friend and, and fellow Disney historian, J.B. Kaufman. Uh, and so this is a very in-depth um, uh, history of the making of Fun and Fancy Free, uh, illustrated with hundreds uh, or at least uh, close to 200 uh, illustrations uh, most of which had never been seen before. Uh, and we were hoping to release two more monographs this year. Uh, obviously, we're slowed down uh, by the COVID situation, uh, but I, I can already announce that the next monograph is going to be one that I've been researching and writing, uh, which is called The Origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures. Mm. And it has already moved to layout. And I have to admit, I'm very, very proud of the result. Um, it, it's, it's a story, it is literally a story that has never been told before. Uh, I would say that even for the most serious, advanced Disney historians, I would say that 95% of the information in that volume is going to be brand new. Uh, and most of the illustrations, probably 90%, 95%, are illustrations that you would you will not have been seen be, that you will not have seen before. Um, I admit it. I'm really, really, really happy uh, with with the end result, 
And I'm really hoping that we'll be able to uh, launch it by May or June next year, uh, when the COVID situation will have uh, uh, been resolved, hopefully by then. Um, and uh, and I'm really, uh, I discovered the uh, lost autobiography of the cinematographers, Allen and Mamilot, who are the ones who filmed the Seal Island and the Alaskan Eskimo. Uh, I located their diaries, their correspondence, and so on and so forth. And so it's uh, it's both a story that that tells us how the Disney studio reinvented itself during World War II, and also a story of adventure to actually go and film both the first of the True Life Adventures and the first of the uh, People and Places uh, series. Um, I think you'll find it very exciting. Oh, I'm excited hearing, uh, just listening to this. I, I remember um, some references on your blog um, on that front. And, you know, it makes me think of how that series really represents the origins of a lot of nature documentaries, too. Um, so I, 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 I know a lot has yet to be uncovered. So I think you're really uh, validating the point about good work really um, moving the needle because this is a, a topic that has not really been explored um, in, in book form for sure. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and so and we, we have um, many more monographs coming after that. Uh, there is one in progress at the moment on uh, Disneyland 59. Uh, there is another one about the uh, publicity artist Hank Porter, who was extremely uh, uh, productive in the late 30s and 1940s. And, and, and who really deserves a full uh, monograph about him uh, because his illustrations are just so, uh, uh, so amazing, frankly. Uh, and, and we're starting to work also on several monographs about the live action um, projects uh, from uh, the, um, the, the, the story of Robin Hood and his Merry Men to uh, uh, Treasure Island and uh, Darby O'Gill and, and so on and so forth. So, it's it's going to be very fun. It is going to be very very fun. There's no shortage of topics for sure. And and as you're thinking, as you're speaking, I'm I'm thinking too, Didier. I feel like there's also opportunities to, to highlight um, some of the major performers as part of Disney's legacy. Like you talk about some of the older films. I think of someone like Dean Jones's role with so many Disney projects, and I feel like. Um, there's so many different directions to take um, with uncovering different aspects of Disney history that haven't been explored. And I, I'm really glad that you and your colleagues via the Hyperion Historical Alliance are, are serving in that, on that front. Yeah, it's, it's going to be very exciting. I, I must admit, I mean, I, I spent the last 30 years building to this and uh, this, this really, that series of monograph, this is the dream that I always wanted to uh, make a reality. So uh, I'm, I'm very, very, very excited. And I think you can probably feel that. Oh, I do. It's, it's very palpable. And, and, I, and I'm glad too that the, the content is in many ways complementary to what might debut from, as you said, Disney editions or Chronicle books, some of these more niche topics that certainly have an audience, but perhaps aren't as mainstream as other subject matter. Well, I'd like to uh, conclude with, um, I would have asked you about projects in the works, but uh, certainly it sounds like a lot is uh, on your docket. So um, we have covered that. I, I'm hoping we can conclude with some Disney related opinion questions um, that focus on topics such as music and books. So. I'm wondering if we can begin with, um, uh, and, I, and I know for sure you were um, a, a, an aficionado of, of Disney from a, a young age too. Was there a Disney soundtrack that you listened to most while growing up? Uh, there were three soundtracks that I really listened a lot when I was growing up. One was The Jungle Book, um, of course. Uh, uh, that that music is so. Uh, I just it just makes you happy um and that, that's that's really what i would, would say about that i just uh, love 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 the, the the jungle book music um but then the the other uh, two um 
uh, records were vinyl vinyl records that I, I used to listen to over and over and over again, which were two records that my parents had brought back from the US. One was the music of the Tiki Room, and the other one was the music of the uh, Main Street Electrical Parade. And, and actually that one, that, uh, that record of the music of the Main Street Electrical Parade, that was uh, a, a record that had uh, um, that was um, illustrated on the uh, uh, on the record itself. I don't know if you uh, it's a picture disc or I don't know how you call that. But uh -huh. it had a yeah. beautiful illustration of the Main Street Electrical Parade on it. So yeah, those were the ones I listened to most often. Very cool. Were, now, had you actually been to the theme parks prior to listening to the records, or was that your first exposure? I had not. I had not been to the theme parks. I was uh, still living in Paris and. Uh, my parents had, had gone to Disneyland once, and that's when they brought back those, those records. Uh, they went there in 1978, um, and they, they brought back quite a few things for us. I was five years old, uh, and uh, that was, I think, my first really big exposure to, uh, to Disney through the things that they brought back from, from the park at the time. And they thought, oh, Disneyland, it's for kids. We're probably going to spend a few hours there. And then they realized, oh, oh my God, one day is not enough. And we're, we're enjoying it even more than kids. Oh, wow. How fantastic. I'm glad that you had that exposure then through the audio and the music. So on kind of continuing on the topic of music, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? When you wish upon a star, but that's because uh, some someone asked me a similar question recently about my favorite uh, musics and songs, and uh, and I mentioned when you wish upon a star, and it's difficult to uh, um, to forget when you wish upon a star once you have mentioned it. Uh, not as much as it is to f to forget. Obviously, it's a small world, but good luck now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, what what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music uh, i'm not sure that that one is a tough one i i'm not sure i have the answer to that one probably some of the uh, probably either saludos amigos or the three caballeros that that would be my guess very very good um moving over to book questions what is the most recent disney book that you have read Oh, um, probably the Mickey Mouse book that I mentioned earlier, uh, or let me see. I'm not sure. I don't know. I, the Mickey Mouse book uh, by David Jernstein and J.B. Kaufman. Very nice. Now, this next question might be a little bit moot because in a sense you've addressed it, and I also recognize you might have a bunch of things in development, but if you could write a Disney book on any topic that has not been covered already, um, what would it be about? Well, actually, that's a, that's a very good question uh, because this is not a project that I have in the works at the moment, uh, but that's something that I would love to tackle at some point, which is a complete history of the Disney shorts from the 1930s, uh, including all of the abandoned shorts. Uh, I think that's a project that has not been covered properly uh, before, and that really needs to be covered in depth. Um, and, and really the whole history needs to be told. It probably needs to be done in not just one volume, but several volumes. Uh, but that, that's something I would like to do at some point. Now, a few, uh, a few books, that a few monographs I'm working on at the moment. Uh, one we already mentioned, which is the origins of Walt Disney's True Life Adventures. Uh, I'm working on the sequel to that, uh, which is going to focus on more of the Troll Life Adventures plus uh, some other uh, projects that the studio was working on in parallel uh, for parallel series, one about history and one about music. Uh, and, and so it wasn't just going to be the Troll Life Adventures were thought of as the Adventures in Nature series. And, and the studio was also working on an Adventures in History and Adventures in Music uh, series. Uh, and so I, I, would like, I would like to tell the story of those, those three series uh, between uh, uh, 1948 and 1952. Um, and so that, that would be the second volume of the, the, the series on the True Life Adventures. Uh, and then 
I'm working uh, with another historian on a history of uh, the making of Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Um, and part of what I'm really focusing on are the, the research trips to Ireland that, that led to the making of that movie. Uh, and so, um, and, and my friend Jim Holyfield uh, will write about the actual making of the, of the movie. Um, and there are a few other things that, that, I'm, that I'm researching right now that, that are also going to be really fun. Oh, I'm so excited to hear about those, particularly you mentioned those adventures in music and history. I had never heard of that, so I think that will be uh, very intriguing. Mm-hmm. Didier, final question for you. Um, so this is a random question that I mix up with every guest. Um, and thinking back to kind of the time aspect re- related to this latest volume in They Drew As They Pleased. Is there a Disney film that has debuted in the past 30 years that you think you have watched the most number of times? In the past 30 years, um, I-, I would say probably the two Disney movies that most impacted me in the last 30 years were Monster Inc. Uh, from Pixar and Zootopia uh, from Disney. Uh, those were for me the two, uh, the, the two highlights over the past uh, 30 years that really uh, uh, impacted me the, the most. And I have to admit that there is one movie I'm really, really looking forward to because I think it probably will impact me as much as those two, uh, which is uh, Soul, um, the movie directed by Pete Docter from Pixar, which is going to be released hopefully in November this year. Wonderful. You know, you mentioned Monsters, Inc. and Zootopia, and um, one common aspect of both films that uh, really engages me as a viewer time and time again is just the world building and the amazing visuals on screen through that process. So those are really cool picks. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the world building is, is outstanding. Uh, but but also it has it has a lot of heart um, and and the, the, the personalities of the characters the, the flow of the story everything for me works perfectly uh, uh, with those two movies and when it comes to Monster Zinc I mean for me that was the definition of perfection um, because on top of Monster Zinc when I discovered it in cinemas. Uh, it was also, it was, of course, preceded by the short uh, For the Birds, mm. which for me is the most incredible short that, that Disney or Pixar have released uh, over the past, uh, I don't know how many years. Uh, and so from the moment uh, For the Birds started uh, till uh, Monsters Inc. concluded, I was on cloud nine. I was just in heaven. Oh, yes, I, I remember the first time I, I watched both of those, too. So that's, um, love, love that pick. Um, well, let's conclude. How can listeners follow your work, your, your many books, um, and you um, online as well? The, um, the best way is to check out the uh, Disney History blog uh, or uh, to... Uh, uh, join the page which is called the Disney History Institute on Facebook. This is where I share most of the news about the upcoming projects and uh, and things that have been released and discoveries and so on and so forth. Wonderful. Didier, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I know you have many projects that are going to be um, in the hands of, of readers as they debut because they are covering niche topics and and what a remarkable role you've had in uncovering so much Disney history that may never have seen the light of day um, unless there was the capable individual to uh, take charge and, and let that unfold. So thank you. And, uh, and once again, a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much, Brett. It has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you again to Didier Gez for coming on Notably Disney. My enthusiasm for They Drew As They Pleased is probably pretty strong, as you could tell from uh, my talking points and and interpretations. It's a really marvelous series in that it showcases uh, a lot of hidden artwork, 
um, pieces of Disney history that you may not have heard of, even if you are quite well informed, then that's really a testament to the quality of Didier's research um, and the really cool sources he's able to um, entail uh, kind of involved in this process, whether it's interviews with some of the artists um, as illustrated in the last edition and also um, finding some rare documents and materials along the way. Uh, and in addition to that, as I talked about the Ultimate Disney Books Network, um, if you're not already a viewer or someone who has checked out this website, I would encourage you to because it's really a wonderful hub for um, basically all the Disney books you could imagine. There are often updates about upcoming releases, so I would mark it as a favorite um, on your web browser and, and check it out. So thank you again, Didier. This was a wonderful time. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H M-A-N reports, and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.